Hello. This is the first episode of what will become a bi-weekly, meaning every other, not twice a week, 30-ish minute long show about the story and the world of Final Fantasy XIV. This first episode is both longer than normal and available to you, the listener, for free in your pitch drop feed of choice. Future episodes will be Patreon exclusive, and you can hear them by backing us at the $1 level. If you like this episode and want to hear more, head on over to tentacle.pro and kick us a dollar or more. If you're hearing this on your Patreon feed, thank you so much. Consider telling a friend or two about this new show, and uh, with that out of the way, let's talk about a video game. You are listening to Lightning Strikes Thrice Extreme. It's like if a podcast got good after 60 episodes. I am your host, Chris Taylor, and with me is uh, my co-host who has uh, done this to me. (laughs) Um, My name is Ryan Beatty, uh, and when I get excited about something, I talk incessantly about it with my online friends, uh, eventually wearing at least one of them down, despite peppering my excitement with trillions of caveats. Uh, Poor Chris was caught in the crossfire of my enthusiastic semi-recommendation of Final Fantasy XIV. Sorry, Chris. I feel like I was not warned sufficiently enough for how bad the base (laughs) game is. So this is the first episode of our Patreon exclusive podcast, and we'll be talking about the story, world, and mechanics of Final Fantasy XIV, which is admittedly a lot to take on. If you are a Lightning Strikes Thrice listener, the format will be very familiar to you. The goal is to bring that approach of Lightning Strikes Thrice, the JRPG Games Club on the Pitch Drop Network, where we discuss plot goings on and mechanics as they are interesting. Like Lightning Strikes Thrice, this podcast will release every other week. Unlike the games covered on Lightning Strikes Thrice, this one is an MMO, so the playtime required to generate an episode is much higher. To maintain that release schedule, episodes will be shorter, ranging from 30 minutes to an hour. I would rather kill myself than play as much as required for a three-hour episode of this podcast. Absolutely not, especially when we've both already gone over this content once before. So... While we're talking about how it being an MMO changes the format, it also means that each bit of story you get is less meaningful. And as a result, we'll zoom out a little more. You will not get, for example, so you go to X, he says Y, and then you go kill Z monsters and go back and he says blah. The approach will be do a quest for so-and-so and find out whatever. And we'll also be talking about the story and mechanics of duties as they come up. Uh, Yeah, we're not expecting to cover content that is not part of the main story quest unless it falls into one of the following categories. One, it has its main story relevant, uh, such as the Binding Coil of Bahamut duties. Uh, It has its own substantial side story like the Alliance raids, or it is extremely good and we like it, such as the Hildebrand questlines. This is going to be 
our generalities episode where we first provide a book report about the cursed launch version of Final Fantasy 14 referred to as 1.0, then explain the mechanics and general structure of the game. Um, before we get into the meat of the episode, I thought it would probably be relevant to discuss our previous experience with MMOs as it will clarify where exactly we're coming from. So I've never played more than a few hours of an MMO before playing Final Fantasy XIV because I think they are terrible pits that you shovel your life into for fake rewards, unlike all of the rest of video games and having a job. <laughs> I got catfished into Final Fantasy XIV by discussions with uh, Ryan, who told me it's Square Enix's best writing, which, to be fair, is true. I just feel like I was not sufficiently warned about how shitty the base game is through the first expansion. Uh, I wound up buying a level 70s job skip for Samurai, and so after soloing as a healer for 15 levels, who would not assume that Conjurer was a pet class and not a healer? <laughs> this worked perfectly because it wound up providing a high level of mechanical complexity while the narrative was dull, and then as the narrative started to pick up, I switched to a dumb guy class and played Dark Knight. <laughs> I wound up playing through all of the story content available in the game, as well as getting a Samurai, uh, Dark Knight, and Scholar and Fisher to 80 in like a year. Probably not healthy. Uh, it's like an entire month's worth of time in a year. Uh, and, and now I uh, just hang out and free content with the free company a couple nights a week. Uh, so you're one of us now. Yeah, uh, it um, MMO content isn't generally consumed in a healthy way that or at least for me, that was the case. So um, I played like a little bit of WoW uh, years ago and it didn't really hook me. And then um, my obsession with things that require large time investment, uh, for example, extremely long fantasy series or uh, Final Fantasy 13, which doesn't get, quote, good until a certain amount of time. Although I know the lightning strikes thrice. Official opinion is the opposite of that. Boy, I, I was immediately wound up and then fine, I'm like, OK, fine, let it go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I became obsessed with trying to play Final Fantasy 11 I tried to get it working on my old Mac uh, via boot camp or via wine. And because I, I, I heard that Final Fantasy XI, much like the rumors about Final Fantasy XIV, had some of Square Enix's best writing, um, I made it a little bit of the way through and then just tried to consume the the text at, like through forum posts and, and, and summaries and stuff because um, Final Fantasy XI was extremely player hostile and it took me um a hundred hours to get through the first third of the story so i quit um but uh i i had the itch had the bug for a final fantasy themed mmo during a time when i also had a lot of depression and my fandom of final fantasy 14 the platform to uh, soothe your depression was born and turns out i ended up really liking the story and the game as well after after a few dozen hours so that will take us into our standard someone reads from wikipedia section Final Fantasy XIV began development in 2005 under the codename Rapture, ironic given what happens later, as something <laughs> that could feel familiar to Final Fantasy XI players and something that could stand on its own. It was developed in Crystal Tools, the engine that created the Final Fantasy XIII fiasco, which created development's problems, much to the surprise of literally no one outside of Square Enix. It was uh, 
released for Windows in September 2010 and remained active until November 2012 when it was shut down. Perception was very negative with a 49 out of 100 average rating on Metacritic and one review described it as play is like playing with a toy stuck in a plastic bag. It could be fun for a while and you get the general idea, but you can't appreciate the full experience. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. The reception caused them to extend the 30 day free trial twice and definitely postpone the PS3 version until it, quote, fully met the quality standards suitable for the Final Fantasy series. And uh, PC version subscriptions were suspended indefinitely. (laughs) I want to add real briefly that actually it was built in the Crystal Tools engine and it also had some of the same problems as 13's development, namely all the individual designers uh, and and asset makers were all cordoned off making the best possible version of their own individual element. And there was no one making sure that any of it hung together on its own. The story of of the of 1.0 going into 2.0 is incredible. And if you're interested in an in-depth behind the scenes postmortem of how it all happened, um, I highly recommend the no clip documentary series on Final Fantasy 14, particularly the very first episode titled 1.0. We'll have a link to that in the episode description. That's where you can hear horrifying facts such as everything in the game had the same number of polys, a tiny flower pot, yeah. and the same number of polys. Oh, my flower. goodness. <laughs> uh, and they also um, tried to build it entirely using scripting tools so that they didn't have to deal with programmers, um, which is cool if you're working on an indie game as a designer. Scripts can be extremely uh, beneficial, but trying to build an entire fully featured MMO out of nothing but scripting tools is unreal to me. Yeah, like imagine making your MMO. I know, I know. What? Okay. So before we get into a recap of the story of 1.0, let's talk about the world itself as it will help to color the events of 1.0 and all that is to come. So all of 1.0 and A Realm Reborn and its patches, as well as Heaven's Word, take place in a land called Eorzea. Eorzea is a region within the world of Hydaelyn and comprises the Aldenard content, one of the three major contents and its outlying islands. Eorzea has a diverse set of biomes ranging from harshy ice wastes of Ishgard to the searing deserts of Thanalan. Despite this, people are continuously drawn to it for its abundance of aether, a magical energy that exudes from the land itself. Eorzea is a political region, not just a geographic one, and it is divided into several major city-states. Eorzea is founded in a particularly Aether-rich region of Hydaelyn. You can think of Aether as Final Fantasy XIV's equivalent of Mist or Mako, and Eorzea as uh, Final Fantasy IX's Mist Continent. Aether is the literal land's power made manifest and is harnessed as energy that drives magic and technological development forward. The other major player as far as 1.0 in A Realm Reborn is concerned is Garlemald. Garlemald is located to the northeast of Eorzea and home to the mighty Garlean Empire. The Garlean Empire is a technological marvel creating Magitech from Ceruleum Crystal's mine from the Earth. The Empire spans three quarters of Hydaelyn's continents and has set its sights on Eorzea and the slaying of its primals, which threaten the Empire's technological progress due to their love of Aether energy. 
the relaunch of Final Fantasy XIV as a Realm Reborn uh, has pulled the strange and clever trick of making the events of 1.0 canon, even though none of 1.0 is playable anymore, uh, but also making the disastrous shutdown of the game important to the world of a Realm Reborn. It's fucking incredible. I know. I love it. I love it so much. The fact that uh, the the game had to shut down for a couple of years and so no one knew what was happening and then uh when the game opens back up it is mysteriously a few years after the end of 1.0 or technically 1.23 i guess so we thought it might be helpful to provide a little book report about the high level events of 1.0 if you are interested in a more detailed and dramatic version of these events, the YouTuber Ethis Asher has created a prepare to cry style retrospective. Uh, it's really good. It's dramatically told. Also, a very friendly YouTuber has uploaded the official Square summary uh, titled The Waning of the Sixth Sun, which was found on the A Realm Reborn 2.0 bonus disc and which absolutely should have been included as a cinematic in the base version of A Realm Reborn. And then also the Heidelin Players Collective has an extremely long but compelling summary written up called A Comprehensive Look at the Seventh Umbral Era Story Arc that is worth checking out. All three of these are from a higher level and not from the perspective of the adventurer, really. Um, we will have uh, links to those in the show notes as well. Knowing Square Enix, the uh, video is probably somewhere in Final Fantasy XIV, but you can only access it in the uh, Tales of Adventure if you already played 1.0, probably. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. That's how they did it. <laughs> totally, yeah. Um, or, you know, like you have to go into the inn, but then access a submenu inside the story submenu. And then it says, oh, you have to play 1.0 and we need that badge first. Um, Eorzea is, as Chris mentioned, uh, a land where gifted warriors and magic users are able to harness and manipulate the life force of the planet, uh, known as Aether. 
My favorite thing about Aether is that it's spelled with a Y in 1.0, and then in 2.0 they decided that's dumb and there's no Y anymore. Yeah, but they... You, oh my goodness, you're right. It's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been great if they also eliminated, like, the extraneous Y out of Hydaelyn as well, because Hydaelyn has two Ys and the second one is totally useless. Um, just, you know, part, part, of the, part of the calamity was removing certain Ys from the language. The nature of the land was fundamentally changed, and thus we changed it from a Y to an E. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so again, like Chris mentioned, um, Aether exists as both an unseen life stream in the air and under the ground, and also in solid form in crystal deposits throughout the world. The history of Aorzea is divided up into astral eras, which are periods of peace and stability, and umbral eras, which take place after tremendous calamities rock the world and spark ages of darkness and rebuilding. Players begin the game as adventurers, arriving at one of the three independent Aorzean city-states, Gradania, Ulda, or Limsa Lominsa. All three city-states have recently opened up their grand companies to adventurers in order to help with increased attacks by newly violent monsters and aggressive, semi-civilized beast tribes. Yes, this gets better. No, it doesn't get less racist for years. Uh, the aggression of beast and tribe alike uh, strangely seems to coincide with the lesser moon Dalamwood growing bigger and brighter in the sky. In our early adventuring, we are beset by a vision of apocalypse from a cryptic elf man known as Urianger. Uh, we meet one or two members of the Circle of Knowing, which is a secret society of powerful magic users who know what's really going on. Learn about the internal politics of whatever city-state we chose, and discover that the Garlean Empire to the north is ramping up their campaign of conquest once again. We also learn that the Beast Tribes now have the ability to summon their long-dormant gods, who are possessed of tremendous etheric energy and capable of both mind control and tremendous destruction. A lot of the main story from here involves fleshing out the backstory of how we got to this point. So it turns out that Garlemald was a relatively small state far to the north who began expanding their empire after unearthing powerful magical technology— Magitech, thanks Sakaguchi, from the ancient Alagan Empire. This empire disappeared 5,000 years ago after a calamity plunged the realm into the Fourth Umbral Era. With this tech, the Garleans swiftly conquered much of the north with no force strong enough to stop their terrible, destructive path. After having conquered the mountainous country of Alamigo, the Garleans were mysteriously stopped from expanding into Eorzea itself at the Battle of Silver Tear Skies. The dragon god Midgard Zormer intervened in the affairs of mortals, and he and his Dravanian horde destroyed the Garlean flagship that was wreaking havoc on the land. The battle blasted so much excess etheric energy into the world that it gave the beast tribes back the ability to summon the primals and turned the entire Mordona region into one giant crystallized mess. The defeat stopped the Garleans from expanding into Eorzea for 10 years. Damn, dude, they just do all of this over again, huh? Yeah, they absolutely do. It's uh, it's kind of incredible how much the story of 2.0 was. Remember 1.0? You kind of don't, but we're doing it again, which, you know, respect to them for making 1.0 canon, but disrespect to them for just repeating a lot of the same plot points. But, you know, whatever. It's a flat circle, bro. 
Yeah, season season four of True Detective is going to take place in Ulda. There's going to be some alcoholic monitorist who needs redemption somewhere. It's going to be great. Someone's RPing that on some server somewhere as we speak. Fuck it, just Lola Rito with the lights, headlights on his chocobo off driving down the highway. <laughs> yes. Um, so, sometime later, uh, the dad of 1.0, the scholar Louis Swa, who was from a far-off snooty isolationist island called Charlayan, created the Circle of Knowing and tried to convince the nation-states of Eorzea that the summoning of primals by the beast tribes would drain all of the aether from the land and that the primals must be defeated and prevented at all costs. Turns out, that Garlemald also wants to stop the primals, which they call icons, but they want to do it with something called the Meteor Project, which seems maybe worse than the primals themselves. So, in between killing primals, the three nation-states join their armies together as the Eorzean Alliance. They launch attacks on Garlean strongholds, trying to stop the Meteor Project. They do this with the help of Sid Nan Garland, a brilliant scientist and technician who defected from Garlemald after some of his experiments related to the Meteor Project ended up leveling a place and killing a few thousand folks. We learn that the Meteor Project is an ancient Allegan weapon, and that the Lesser Moon Dalamud, which has been growing larger and closer throughout the quest, is an integral part of this project. Nail Van Darnus, the Garlean Legatus who is leading the Meteor Project and the primary antagonist of 1.0, is absolutely unhinged and seemingly possessed and will stop at nothing to bring Meteor down. He constantly tells us it's too late to stop him, no matter how many strongholds we raid and how many moon transmitters we destroy. Turns out he was right. Louis Swa figures this out and attempts to summon the Twelve, the most powerful gods of the planet, in order to stop Dalamud from falling. Uh, the game climaxes in the final battle of Cartano, where the combined Eorzean armies clash against an overwhelming Garlean force while trying to buy time for the summoning of the Twelve. But it is all for naught. Dalamud finally arrives, revealing itself to be a tremendously powerful primal known as Bahamut, who the Allegans trapped inside an artificial moon. Bahamut proves too powerful for the amassed forces and begins raining destruction over everyone. All seems lost. But then, in a final desperate act, Louis Swa sends the most powerful adventurers, now known as the Warriors of Light, in recognition... That's us. In, in recognition uh, of their deeds of the realm into the future so that they can survive to save the world where Louis Swa was not able to. Then he and Bahamut both mysteriously disappear in a brilliant flash of light. The destruction wrought by the events of Cartano Flats was bad enough to be classified as a calamity, which begins the seventh umbral era. Five years later, the Aorzean Alliance is crumbled, with each city-state retreating to lick their wounds, slowly rebuild, and prepare for the next Garlean threat. Everyone in the realm has collective amnesia about the role of the Warriors of Light in the Battle of Cartano. Beast tribes still have the ability to summon primals, and adventurers are still needed to keep the realm from falling apart completely. The Circle of Knowing has dissolved, and Louis Swa is gone. And that's 1.0. I'm missing some things from this book report, like the Asians and the first appearances of the main Garlean antagonists for most of 2.0, uh, whose name is Gaius Van Belsar. But this is the most distilled crash course in the events of Final Fantasy XIV that are no longer playable. Uh, 
what surprised me most about my research is the amount of backstory that we get for some important 2.0 characters that seem completely Teflon and storyless in their A Realm Reborn versions, at least for like all of 2.0 to through the 2.0 patches. I'm sure that we will talk about Sid and Urianger and Minfilia as we get to them in the A Realm Reborn story, but they all have backstory in 1.0 that is really only barely touched on in the current version of the game, despite being crucial to the events of A Realm Reborn. Yeah, Urianger is just the guy who reads books. He's a dork. Until he becomes like a triple spy. Right, exactly. And it turns out that that he was like having these terrible visions of Dalamud and trying to spread the word of that. And so the Garleans put out a hit on him. That also makes it less weird when he magically starts having visions. Right. It's like, yeah, no, he's been psychic. Weird. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm still thinking about the time you, you go back in time to give Sid his coggles. Oh my god. <laughs> I forgot about that. That wraps up all the story content for the episode. We are now entering the panic section of the podcast. If you are or have ever been a Final Fantasy XIV player, you may turn off the episode now. Uh, if not, I recommend you stick around as this will help ground all of the mechanical conversations that will, in fact, come up in the future. Uh, let's start with the uh, Webster's defines as uh, <laughs> Final Fantasy XIV is, in fact, an MMO which is a massively multiplayer online game. It is always online and you inhabit a shard, one of several servers running out of a data center with thousands of other players at the same time. When you start up the game, you make a character and pick a class. As you play, you level up in this class until you can eventually specialize into its job. Each class has one or two jobs available and the class and its jobs share a level so switching between them incurs no experience loss or time penalty. And at a certain point, your class doesn't matter. So from now on, it's all just going to be called jobs. They call it a, a theme park MMO because they don't want you to be locked out of any content. They want you to be able to enjoy all the content at your leisure. And so you're not locked into a class. So you don't have to create alternate characters, uh, which we both did for this podcast so that we were having a fresh experience. There are lots of jobs, 18 at the time of this recording, ranging from dark knights to white mages to machinists. However, they all fit into one of three roles, tank, DPS, and healer. While there is some variation in how any given job does its roles function, they can be summarized as follows. So tanks, their job is to be hard to kill and to manage aggro, which is called enmity in Final Fantasy 14. We're just going to call it aggro because that's yeah. what everyone in the world calls it. Yeah. Maintaining aggro means ensuring that enemies and bosses attack you and not the rest of the party as the tank has the highest hit points and defense. 
as well as skills for damage mitigation and uh, often crowd control. Aggro dissipates over time if you aren't continually attacking a target, so when managing a crowd, you op optimally want to alternate your single target combo with an AoE so the other enemies don't lose interest and kill your party. Unless they're rude, then you do it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Love to catch Shirk on sassy healers. <laughs> Just, like, undermining the raid to prove a point. That's great. That's oh, yeah. yeah, that's you're you're being a good team member. You know, you're it, you're teaching through tough love. Every man's got a code. <laughs> uh, the second main role is DPS. DPS stands for damage per second, and their job is to kill the enemies and not stand in the area of effect attack markers and damage over time effects and the ground. There is a lot of variation in DPS jobs, and as a result, 10 of the 18 jobs are DPS. Uh, DPS are either ranged or melee, and they have varying levels of utility, such as buffs, some light healing, and the ability to, to revive other teammates. Some examples of DPS are Samurai, a melee DPS with no utility but huge damage, to Bard, a ranged DPS with a huge range of buffs to apply to the rest of the party. Healers are pretty straightforward. They do what they say in the tin. Unlike other MMOs, we can kind of get away with just keeping people topped off. You are expected to do a lot of DPS as a healer. Generally, your goal is to actually do as little as healing as possible and while ensuring no one dies and spend all of the rest of the time casting like stone two or whatever your damage spells are. <laughs> Generally, each job also has a unique mechanic, such as scholars having a fairy gauge that they manage or a dark knight's blood and dark gauge that they build and spend on various skills. Um, you usually get these at 50 as you go into the other expansions. So uh, briefly, I think it's important to note that we are playing this game as of the 5.3 patch. And I bring this up while we're talking about job utility because of its nature as an MMO, sometimes Final Fantasy 14 retools, rebalances, uh, rebinds uh, certain classes. And so get fucked monks. Yeah, for real. And so, um, this, when we talk about mechanical details, there are some things that are true now that weren't true for any of the previous patches that may have changed. And it also means that if you're coming to this later, like when 6.0 drops, you know, in two years or whatever that is, that, uh, some of our talk of mechanics may not make sense anymore because they may have retooled those classes in between us talking about them and you playing them. Additionally, though, each job does have its own story that plays out as you level up. As you level your job at certain milestones every five levels or so for the one through 50 base game, uh, you will get a new job quest, get some more story and often be rewarded with new abilities or mechanics. For the podcast, we both decided to choose classes that start in Ulda, as Ulda winds up being the city that is most plot relevant for um, the Realm Reborn and its patch cycle. And it has the level 1 to 15 content in your starting zone that introduces you to uh, major players who will wind up being hugely important later, like fucking Lola Rita. <laughs> for this podcast, I'll be playing a gladiator. Uh, Given that Scholar is probably my favorite class, even though I'm horrible at it, I probably would have preferred to play a healer, but Uldad does not have one, and I was unwilling to play a DPS as I already played a samurai and know that being a DPS queuing for old content is a great way to wait 20 or more minutes. So I'm biting the DPS bullet. 
um, for this podcast, I will be playing a thaumaturge uh, to later become a black mage. As a lore lord, I had always heard that thaumaturgy and uh, black magic factors heavily into the history of Ulda and plays a part in a lot of interesting dungeons. So I wanted to go back and witness the story firsthand uh, because when I first played the game, my starting city was Gridania and I never got to explore the Ulda starting classes or their stories. Gridania is so fucking boring, dude. Yeah, it sucks because I love forest zones and I love mystical cottagecore fairy shit. And so I was really, really hoping that there would be good story in Gridania and it really let me down. It didn't make it into these notes, but while I was doing research, interestingly, uh, alchemists are like the most backstory relevant to Ulda because it is widely known in Eorzea that Ulda's food is shit because they don't have vegetables, so they eat just meats and bugs <laughs> with imported spices. And the only reason they became commercially successful is the Alchemist Guild got hella good at making hooch. Wow. Wow. It's inc- that's fucking incredible to me. That is apparently part of the Alchemist job story. That's incredible. Even though there are so many side quests and so much side content in Final Fantasy XIV that is just nothing, there's no substance to it, there are also just bizarre little lore bits hidden here and there that are so interesting. It's like, you know, they didn't need to make the history of Ulda uh, one that mirrors, you know, prohibition era Chicago, uh, but they did. And that's cool. Known for shitty hot dogs and alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when we're talking about classes. It's again just worth reiterating. Your character is not tied to a class. You can freely change classes at any time as each class tracks its level separately, barring jobs that share a base class. And as a result, the levels such as summoner and scholar The only thing that changes is what level you are, so you do not need to make a new character and start the game, and more importantly, the story over again to just try out new mechanics. Speaking of mechanics, let's talk about combat. Uh, You use your abilities in Final Fantasy XIV like a standard skill. You have several hotbars, and you push the corresponding number key using a modifier key like Shift or Control for your second or third hotbars, and then the animation happens. After you do your skill, you wait for the global cooldown. The global cooldown is a universal cooldown applied to almost all skills of two and a half seconds. There are some variations here. Some skills are channeled where you need to stand still for the duration of the global cooldown to cast, but you can use another skill immediately afterwards. As you level, you'll unlock off global cooldown skills, which can be used while your other skills are unavailable, making your combat more active as you weave them in together. Um, Some skills are ground targeted, so you press a button and then move a marker along the ground to select where you want to cast the ability. Uh, Stuff like uh, scholars damage reducing bubbles or uh, tank ground AoEs that deal damage to enemies are placed this way. Some skills also have positional elements. For example, uh, some samurai skills do additional damage or debuffs if you're standing to the enemy's side or behind them when you execute the ability. Uh, And those enemies don't just stand around waiting for you to do your thing. They will generally auto attack you or the tank if you're in a party. Uh, You can tell if you're being targeted because there will be a red line connecting you and the enemy. Enemies often have lots of AoE attacks, but where the AoE will hit is highlighted in orange on the ground. Colorblind settings, very good. Died a lot before I figured out there were any. If you are still in the area when the orange marker disappears, you will take a hit. Sounds very simple, but it gets much more complex as you go through the game. 
such as multiple overlapping areas resulting in the ability for you to get hit more than once and definitely die, or moves that will hit the whole arena, but the damage areas come up staggered, allowing you to move through them with proper timing and not take any damage. There are other boss mechanics, uh, such as stack-up markers, rotational moves, and the like, uh, but we'll cover them as they come up. Uh, because they're not often part of the low-level dungeon or raid bosses. Yeah, low-level content is the boss has an orange circle around it, stand out of the orange circle. Right. So since it was eventually released for the PS3 and is also playable on the PS4, which is where I play it, the entire game is playable on a controller. So on the controller, instead of hotbars, you have control cords. Your interface shows 16 buttons divided into two sets of eight. Either hold the left or right trigger to select which set of eight is active, and those eight buttons are then laid out like and mapped to your D-pad and face buttons. You can swap between these sets of 16, allowing you to have a ton of skills a button or two away on the controller. This works out very well, and personally, I find the movement much easier on a controller. You have direct control of your character and the camera with the sticks, much like any third-person action game, which makes um, really tight dodging easier, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. The optimized controller design is a holdover from Final Fantasy XI, which was nearly impossible to play on a keyboard and mouse until you really got your bearings. It was so designed around having a controller, even though it was an impenetrable pre-WoW MMO-ass game. So I'm really happy that it plays so well on console and on controller. I uh, switched to a controller after finally get, after getting kicked from a duty. Uh, it is one of the Heavensward duties where you go fight that dragon who has the two wings mm. and he does uh, he does the cross AOEs on the healer and just could never get out of them in time and would die every time. Oh, like, no. I think kicked after wiping like 10 times. I was like, I guess I'll learn how to play on a controller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it uh, I, you know, I don't think I've ever been kicked from a dungeon they were so patient it's that there was a two-minute run-up and it was like 10 wipes before i got booted. oh chris no well <laughs> so bad. i'm glad that that sparked you to to see the light and come over to the controller side Now that hopefully you understand more of classes in combat, uh, let's talk about the structure of Final Fantasy XIV. Um, the main draw of it, uh, of Final Fantasy XIV, is the main story quest, which we will constantly refer to as the MSQ. So don't forget that acronym. Since FF14 is in fact an MMO, the structure is that you go up to a guy with an icon over his head, he'll tell you some story, You'll go do some stuff and then come back. Or if you're lucky, go to a new guy for more story. Sometimes a quest will require you to do a duty or instanced battle 
in the base game in its patches, uh, referred to as A Realm Reborn in the 2.x cycle, uh, the play experience is frankly pretty bad. Almost every quest is talk to guy, teleport somewhere, get an item from someone or kill like three of like these squirrels or whatever the fuck and then <laughs> teleport back and turn it in. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, to to the the developers credit, um, we have been talking about making this podcast for a while, but we waited specifically until 5.3, which is where they trimmed down a fair portion. We don't know exactly how trimmed down it is yet because we're just starting, but they trimmed down a fair portion of some of the more needless questing and traveling. So hopefully it's still pretty bad, but it's less bad and there's less of it. Bro, so excited about those boosted XP gains and being able to fly in the patch cycle. Uh, flying in the patch cycle is going to be so crucial. Oh my goodness. It'll be the best zone to get flying in because you don't have to do anything. You don't have to go hit all these stupid Aether currents. Yeah, yeah. While you're questing, you will uh, be running around the world, which is populated by NPCs, monsters, and other players. Sometimes also harder encounters called fates. They're kind of not very you're not going to do any of them. Yeah, it's uh, one of those things um, where the localization team has a lot of fun. They are... Um, There's so many good puns names. Because they are working side by side with the writers, they care about the lore and they care about an accurate translation. But it's it's like there are people in the localization team that are like a good world version of Victor Ireland, just like making puns that are absolutely not in the Japanese version. But unlike Victor Ireland games, uh, they don't totally intrude and alter the tone of the story my favorite one is ifrit hard which i think is named <laughs> ifrit ain't broke yeah oh it's good it's so good and so uh I, I i bring those up because sometimes you'll come across a fate in the overworld and you will go in and read like the tech description of what's happening and you'll go oh interesting this is why this monster exists and then you go oh <laughs> this name is dumb and then and then you probably move on instead of actually fighting the fate um sometimes you encounter instance battles which are things that you will be prompted to start they must be done solo in other words if you're already in a party you will need to disband and are often very story relevant and are fights against unique named enemies instance duties take the place of things in older MMOs where you would stand in a line to kill an enemy that took five minutes to respawn, such as Hogger in World of Warcraft. In later expansions, your job quests will often have instance battles designed to test your mastery of your job's currently available mechanics, and these are extremely fun unless you're bad and now uh, there's a difficulty selector and you turn them down to very easy <laughs> because the Dark Knight capstone for Heaven's Word is extremely hard. <laughs> The other type of content you'll encounter as you progress through the MSQ are duties. Duties is Final Fantasy XIV's name for raids. We are going to be saying the word duty, D-U-T-Y, a lot in this podcast. And so you will need to get over your inner 12-year-old at some point, or this podcast will be unlistenable. I did laugh when I typed it. Oh, same, same. Uh, I, I laughed reading it the, few, the first few times. So um, you will queue up for the duty and be placed. It, God damn it. Not, an, not enough bathrooms in this arena. <laughs> I just. In the, in, in the duty queue. Uh, why did I just FedEx arrow our own damn podcast? <laughs> that was not smart of me in the middle of recording. I, I wouldn't have thought of the duty queue if you hadn't said that. <laughs> 
<laughs> Every raid is just Coachella. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so uh, you will queue for the duty and be placed into a group of four, eight, or 24 players, depending on the type of raid. Your party composition will be one tank, two DPS, and one healer multiplied for larger sizes. During a duty, you will get sent to a unique dungeon and follow a pretty linear path, fighting groups of enemies with some bosses interspersed. Sometimes the dungeon will have other mechanics like collecting energy cells or solving a puzzle that you do along the way. Uh, they generally really suck ass and uh, cease to exist as the game goes on. There is another type of group play called trials, but these are just duties that are just one hard boss and are reserved for uh, significant story important bosses, uh, such as like when you go to kill a primal or whatever. Spoilers, you do a lot of primal killing. Oh, goodness, you do so much primal killing. Um, that kind of that's basically it. Uh, the mechanics that will matter to you as you go through the MSQ. There are lots of other things you could learn about, like roulettes, free companies, glamours, uh, which uh, are apparently the only thing that matters. Uh, vi- true. Various gear grinds like relic weapons, uh, Eureka, etc. But they are not directly connected to the MSQ or meaningful side stories. So we're not going to talk about them on here. Uh, We might talk about the story of Eureka, but I will not be playing Eureka for the story and we'll be just checking out all the (laughs) cutscenes. How much of Eureka have you already played on your main character, though? Just just curious. Like 50 hours halfway through the third zone. Yeah, Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. I still got to finish this zone and get into the next zone. And it's all for a pair of boots so I can finish my scholar glamour. So uh, a little a little peek behind the curtain. Chris wrote the mechanical notes for for this episode. And so he put where he says the glamours are the only thing that matters uh, into the notes as though it would come out of my mouth uh, when when Chris is the one who is obsessed with fashion fantasy. I just... It's fine. Yeah, I just need to put that out there. Look, why even play if you're going to look like shit? The worst <laughs> part about starting the game over is like, like when I started as a conjurer, you're just like literally wearing burlap sacks. Why <laughs> even play the game? See, see, I really liked the outfit that they, that they put my character into uh, at first because it just doesn't make sense for for because i decided to be a rogadin thaumaturge so i'm just like this you know giant beefy woman in um a leather bikini who's trying to cast some spells with a big floppy hat on it's good it's good the gladiator starting gear is so bad it's like it looks like diablo 3 crusader armor oh no just like this shitty crown and just the most enormous shoulder pads <laughs> yeah looks very funny on the like dragon lady <gasps> oh my goodness i can see that yeah if you're interested in actually playing final fantasy 14 but are not interested in what you think of as the gameplay when you imagine an mmo <laughs> buy a story skip to the start of heaven's word uh that's where the quest design starts to get good your main story quest will usually involve um, talking to a bunch of people rather than going to go fetch some items uh if you do start playing you should, you should play on goblin <laughs> play with me i'll only bully you a little bit <laughs> i think that's all for the episode unless you have anything else you want to add nope that's it for me all right we'll catch you in two weeks on the patreon feed reminder one dollar tentacle.pro <laughs> for the first plot episode of lightning strikes thrice extreme talk to you next time see you later
Like I said up top, thanks for being a patron. Your continued patronage helps making these shows not be a financial burden without having to put ads in them. Since you're already a patron, you can help us out by reviewing your favorite shows on the podcatcher of your choice, telling a friend about our podcast, or sharing an episode on social media. In case you didn't know, we have lots of podcasts. We have Dean Jim Davis, a daily chronological Garfield comic strip recap podcast. Lightning Strikes Thrice, a JRPG game club podcast. Magmar Sucks, a show where we stack rank Pokemon based on how interesting their lore is. And last but not least, Boku No Stop, a podcast about anime and low-effort jokes. Thanks for being a loyal listener. We'll see you next time. Oh no! Yeah, that's what I fucking thought, buddy. <laughs> just saw, saw me stood up and immediately jumped off. Uh, is that why he's named Buddy? So you can just do, say, "Hey, fuck off, buddy!" Like it works out that way, but beautiful. not. No, it's because uh, my child named our cat. Oh, well, that's would have a... named my child Chairman Meow if I had the choice. <laughs> uh, I just want you to say. I just want to recognize that you just said you would have named your child Chairman Meow if you had the choice.